We are uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you will turn there with your Bibles. If you would now stand with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Now, I'm hearing my voice a lot. Is the the volume okay back there? Does anybody want it down? I hear, yeah, I see a few heads... Nodding, not many. We like it loud, right? Okay, we're good. I just didn't want anybody distracted because I will likely get loud. The Word of God, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our hearts attention. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must have a good report of them which are without or outside of the congregation, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to these wonderful words, both of light and light. Let's unite our hearts, one voice, one heart before God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we cannot but praise Thee when we think upon who Thou art, when we think upon what Thou hast done in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, we see Thy mighty arm made bare. We see Thy hand at work. We see thee doing great things, strange things, upsetting things to some, glorious things to others. And oh God, how we pray with all of our hearts that we would be united in our praise this morning. Lord, here are the people. Here they are. Lord, in, in this little 
for enactment of the day of judgment when we will all be standing before thee. Here we are. Thou dost see us. Thou dost know us. Thou hast showered us with blessings. And oh God, how we do pray that thou wouldst mightily bless us. We do bless thee. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Oh, my soul, Jehovah praise. And I ask, O oh righteous Father, that thou wouldst fill our hearts, fill us to overflowing with the mighty power of thy spirit, that power of light, that power of life, that power of transformation. Oh, God, we bless thee. Oh, how we thank thee for what thou hast revealed of thyself. And we plead, we plead that thou would show us more. We want more of thee. We want thy spirit moving in this place today. Look at thy dear children. Thou knowest every heart. Father, thou knowest perhaps some need cheer. Perhaps some need comfort. Father, perhaps some need assurance. Perhaps some, O oh Lord, need rebuke. Perhaps some need to be on the mountaintop with thee. And perhaps some need to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, comforted by thy rod and staff. O oh Lord in heaven, thou truly art our Father. We are so grateful for thy love. We are so grateful for the grace that was shown us in Christ. We are so grateful for the mercies poured out upon us. And I ask thee again, as I did moments ago, bless us, bless us with thyself. Lord, drive out any idols in our hearts. Drive away the spiritual enemies that might be vexing us, distracting us. Oh, Lord, may the Spirit have a full reign in this place today. And oh, may we know it. May we come away knowing that we've met with our God. And that he has blessed and encouraged and built up our souls. Made us sorrowful for our sins. Made us joyful that thou hast washed away our sins in the blood of Christ. Oh, Father, how we love thee and how we thank thee for loving us first. We would never have moved away from worshiping ourselves had thou not turned our eyes upon thy blessed Son. Now may we hear from him today. May we hear of him and help us as we wrestle through even a much debated issue here this morning. Bless thy children and may our hearts overflow with joy to thee. In the name of Christ, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Guided by the Spirit of God, the Apostle Peter said that the Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd 
and bishop of our souls. Listen to this again. Jesus is, not will be, not ought to be. Jesus is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. That is just another way of saying Jesus is our pastor and overseer. Jesus is the model then for all pastors, all overseers, all elders, all shepherds, for he is the good shepherd. He feeds, comforts, protects, guides, and cares for his sheep. Phil Newton writes in his book, 40 Questions About Pastoral Ministry, Quote, the emphasis on the Lord God as shepherd communicates his presence, care, nurture, comfort, protection, guidance, leadership, and provision. Any future use of the shepherding, shepherding metaphor for those serving his flock must connect these characteristics to pastoral ministry. Close quote. That is the fact. This is not a job. And for those of you that think that pastors just have this job and you ought to be doing your job, get another way of thinking. Because it's not biblical. It's not a hireling work. It is mission. It is heavy work appointed by God. <clears throat> so we ought to look to the great shepherd as he has shepherded us. And those that are our shepherds and those we hope to be our shepherds must be men who think like this. Newton then uh, uh, Newton quotes Shepherds After My Own Heart, a book written by Tim Thaniak. Quote, with the New Testament pastoral office in view, Yahweh's appointed shepherds were not expected simply to tend a flock. They were serving its owner. You want to think about pastoral work? It's serving the owner of the flock. As his representative. Newton then wisely concludes, quote, Pastors, consequently, must reflect the model of the Lord God as shepherd over the flock. Close quote. My beloved brethren, pastors must serve Christ, the flock's owner, and reflect the model of Christ the shepherd. He must serve the owner of the flock and reflect 
the model of the shepherd. He appoints the pastors to feed, comfort, protect, guide, and care for his sheep by the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In and of themselves, they are unable to do so. Elders must be born of God's Spirit, filled with God's Spirit, and equipped by God's Spirit for this monumental task. Timothy was such a man. That is why Paul left him in Ephesus to reform God's order to a congregation that had been disordered by false doctrine. If you read the scriptures carefully from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that God is a God of order. He wants us living in him according to his order. And for every one of us, the beginning of that order moving into our soul is when the Spirit opens our hearts to believe the gospel. Why? Because we repent of our sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now have a Lord who tells us how to live. <clears throat> oh, I don't want anybody telling me how to live. Then you don't want Christ. Because he is the Lord. That's not something you make him. I grew up with the lie. Oh, you make Jesus Lord of your life. No, you don't. You bow to him or you don't. It's that simple. And that bowing begins when we repent of our sins. That bowing begins when we look to him and in faith and plead with him to save our mortal souls. <clears throat> so, Timothy was to bring order to disorder. And the first thing on Timothy's list was reforming the Ephesians, everybody listen carefully, worship. Reforming the Ephesians' worship. You and I are saved to worship God, listen carefully, according to His order, not our good ideas. We believe, at least I know many here do, and everyone should believe in Bible-governed worship, period. God does not need our suggestions. His church does not need our suggestions unless they are something plainly, clearly set forth in the Word of God. We always want to be in God's order. So that's the very first thing Timothy was to work on. He was to reform their worship specifically in prayer. Female modesty and male leadership. You're out of order if those things are not according to the word of God. Worship is the most important thing in your life. 
And anything else that's more important than the worship of Almighty God is your idol and your true religion. No matter how good the thing itself might be. That's why Paul starts with Timothy. Let's get the worship straight. Men, I want you to pray with holy hands and not in wrath and doubting. Women, you should be clothed with what is becoming for women professing Christ, professing godliness with good works. Your life should be covered with good works. If not, I can assure you that your worship is deficient at best. <clears throat> and male leadership. Paul has already said that the women are not to teach. He doesn't permit it. And male leadership is what he makes abundantly clear by the words that he uses in chapter 3. So, we continue to consider the qualifications of a shepherd. And the title of our message is, The Husband of One Wife. May God, our loving Heavenly Father, bless us through His risen Son, our living Savior and Head, Jesus Christ. And may we know both the regenerating and sanctifying power of God's Spirit in our midst. To God be the glory. Amen. We have one major heading this morning. The rest falls under it. <clears throat> Christ begins his description of a blameless man by examining his marriage. Not with whether he's been to seminary or not. That doesn't matter if his marriage isn't in order. The Lord has taught us from this passage that the word bishop simply means overseer. We have also learned that the terms bishop, elder, and pastor describe the same work. Each term describes a different aspect of the work. Overseer describes a man's responsibility and rule in the congregation. Elder refers to his age, experience, maturity, and wisdom. Pastor or shepherd points to a man's personal care, provision, and protection. Protection of Christ's flock. And all these titles overlap. How then are God's people to identify those whom Christ has called to serve as shepherds? The answer is that God has recorded in his infallible word the qualifications of those whom he has chosen and gifted to this 
high calling. The biblical role of elder is not a public office that one can campaign for. Like Absalom did by stealing the hearts of the people of Israel. Neither is it a role entered by popular or popularity contests. It cannot be bought, but it can be stolen by imposters. And it can be seriously damaged by putting a novice in the pulpit, as we will see. The eldership is a solemn work within the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers and qualifies a man. The congregation that examines him by the word of God. And when the people are convinced by the word and spirit that Christ has called that man to the work, they acknowledge it by appointing him to serve and rule them according to God's word. Christ requires a bishop to be blameless, as we have seen. It is therefore necessary. No other option is possible. Why? One, because Christ Jesus, the Holy One of God, is the head of the church. We are to reflect our Holy Master. Number two, because Christ commands it in his word. Really, we don't need anything else, right? He commands it. And three, because Christ Jesus is the model for the shepherds of his flock. Every day, brethren, in a general sense, our lives are declaring to the world something about Jesus. I mean, do you really believe that? We are either lying about Christ and what he's like or we're telling the truth and what he's like. And that begins in the home, as we're going to see. Robert Murray McChain said, quote, study universal holiness of life. He's speaking to pastors. Study universal holiness of life. Your whole usefulness depends on this. For your sermons last but an hour or two. Catch that too. Your sermons last but an hour or two. Your life preaches all the week. Close quote. Richard Baxter said, in the Reformed Pastor. Quote, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine. And lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin. Lest you unsay with your life what you say with your tongues. 
and be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labors. Close quote. These are not exaggerations. These are men who took serious the fact that God commands, commands elders to be blameless. And why? Because he wants all of his people to be blameless. And he wants the elders to model it. You can't pick and choose. You can look in the word of God and filter what's true and what isn't. But now, are you sure that you know what's true or isn't? We've all got to wrestle with that. I have to ask myself that question all the time. As I've been going back through these, these passages, I'm astounded how often I'm just challenged that I took some of these things so lightly, didn't dig more deeply into them. I'd heard them preached in a certain way, which affected the way I saw them. It's the same with you. But when you hear men like McChain and Richard Baxter's, whose ministries were remarkably blessed of God, it was because they were men who heard what God said to pastors and to the members of the church, and they took it seriously. Nevertheless, <clears throat> we have learned that blameless does not mean perfectly sinless lives. No one but Christ has ever lived such a life. It does mean that a pastor is not opened to legitimate attack or criticism on his moral life. How then do Christ's flocks identify a man as blameless? In at least two ways. Number one, they must familiarize themselves with Christ as he is presented in the gospel. Because that's the model. Are you ignorant of the gospels? You're ignorant of Christ at many levels. And you don't know either how to be a husband, a father, or a pastor. You have to know Jesus Christ and walk in his ways. You do that by love. You do that because his grace, mercy, and love has captured your heart. You do that because he's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you all the tools you need to obey him. All of them. He doesn't shortchange any of his children. Now, we might not know how to use them. That's why we need to hear Regular preaching about who and what we are in Christ. Salvation is all of grace. And our sanctification is a grace walk. But God has given us his great and mighty transforming grace. So that by faith we may lay hold of the tools. And utilize what he's given us. So that we can bring him glory. Just to show him how much we love him. That's all it's about. Faith that worketh by love. So, <clears throat> we must 
we must be familiar with that Christ as he is presented in the Gospels. The elder is, as we've seen, his representative. He's not Jesus. (laughs) But he should be being made more like Jesus. And that's one of the things the congregation should be praying for earnestly. Father, help that man. Help that weak vessel to bring you glory. David Dixon, who wrote a book about the eldership in the 1800s, said someone once told him about his own, his pastor, not Dixon's, but the man who was speaking to him. He said, he's a good man, but he doesn't remind me much of Christ I can't think of anything more devastating to hear about your pastoral work but that's true we've got one model before the foundation of the world God predestinated that we should be conformed to him Not your favorite basketball star. Not your favorite football star. God help us. uh, Not any of Hollywood's actors. You know, certainly nowadays, uh, it's hard to find a politician uh, that's even respectable. What's the model? Jesus. That's always the model. He didn't fail at any point. I have failed. I do fail. I will fail in this life at certain points. I can't cross certain lines and remain in a pulpit. This is what we're being told. This is one of the reasons Paul mentions to Timothy. Meditate on these things I'm telling you. That everybody may see your productivity. That they might See the fact that you're profiting from following Jesus faithfully in his word. That's what it, well, things are so complex. Sin made it that way. We have a savior from sin and we can cast ourselves on him to give us light to walk with him in the way that brings him glory. Well, what if I'm not sure? Then don't do it until you're sure. That's what Paul says. Anything that we do without faith is sin. Romans 14, read it carefully. If you can't do it by faith, don't do it. Well, they do it. Well, maybe they have the faith to do it. Or maybe they're misleading you. You need to make sure. How will you know? His word. You've got to come to Christ. Drink him in Pray, commune with him. Get alone with him in the quiet place. Open up his word. Plead for the spirit. Ask for light. And then live on what he shows you. Don't just go, oh, that's a nice fact. Now I can be prideful. No. I've got two more facts than they do. That's not the point. When we put the perfect Christ before us, All of us don't look great, right? But we can grow 
We can be sharpened. We can mature. We can grow up in Christ. Oh, wait a minute. That's what Paul says in the epistle to the Ephesians. We're to grow up to be like Christ. How does that happen? The ministry of the word. The ministry of his word. Ignorance of his word is simply ignorance of how to walk with and bring glory to our Savior. And that's one of the reasons that elders must be blameless. Not perfect. When Paul says this to Timothy, and when Paul says something very similar to uh, Titus, who's in Crete. (laughs) People are known there. The Cretans were known there to be liars. If their mouth is moving, they're lying. You know, Uh, they're called by one of their own prophets, evil beasts. (laughs) How's that? How, How is it living in Florida? A lot of evil beasts. I mean, he's saying, here's their life. It's beastly. Which is sad for those made in the image of God. It's especially sad for those who wear his name. Is it not so? We want to know Christ and walk with him. You can't do it by wishing. You've got to get alone with him. You've got to talk to him. You've got to pour your heart out. To him. Well, you know, I'm kind of busy. Get as unbusy as you can possibly be. You have to learn to do triage if you're going to walk with Jesus. There'll be some things that are lawful things, maybe even really good things, but I can't do that because I must do this. I must walk with Christ. I must learn how to be spiritually minded. I must know how to bring him glory. If I say, he's my savior. Savior from what? Hell. Savior from sin, which is what causes us to go to hell. Every day we should be saying, what do you want today? Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I am not in the flames of hell, the darkness of hell, the absolute horror of hell. You've saved me, and I won't go there. All because of you. What do you want today? Just tell me. Well, he's not going to send you an email. He's not going to send a letter. He's already sent some letters. In the scriptures, he's given you his word. There is no walking with Christ without his word and his spirit. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And that's what elders and pastors and bishops should be doing. Living so that God's people get some idea of how to live. We had some friends years ago. Dear, dear, dear friends. We love them. Um, probably more than most of the family that we had on either side. But as after the Lord saved us and we began to realize what 
living with him was going to be like. And we started moving in that direction because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his grace. We were leaving certain things out of our lives that we had just wallowed in. And our friend said, we don't want to live like that. And they don't. We weren't coming up with something new. We were coming up in our culture with things that our culture doesn't like. If we were of the world, the world would love us. God's people are not. Oh, this is vital. Uh, so that's why, if you, if you stop and think about it, Ephesus is in trouble, right? That's why Timothy is there. And he's to put everything back in order. Titus, he's in Crete. <laughs> People are not only evil beasts, but slow bellies. That means gluttons. The idea, it's a great Greek word. <laughs> it means that when you see them coming, the one thing prominent as they're coming in your direction is their belly. Now, that's what he's saying. They are gluttons, they're beasts, and they're liars. You know what Paul says? Just nurture along like grandpa. Just kind of hope things will get better and whatever you do, just love them. No, Paul did say to love them, but he said, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. A man is not a pastor who will not obey the word of God in reproving and rebuking the Lord's people. That's all he ever does. He's as imbalanced as he can be. He is as imbalanced as he can be. He needs to build and on the building way, reprove and rebuke. If he's a faithful man, he doesn't enjoy that any more than parents enjoy disciplining their children. Brethren, this book has been neglected in this country for a very long time. We need men in the pulpits that will preach Christ, preach his word, preach the Christian life without backing down. They won't be popular, generally speaking. But there will be healthy plants growing to the Lord because they're being trimmed and pruned so that they make more fruit. A man that's blameless is to represent Christ, not the world. For the, the, the good of his dear children. So, <clears throat> if you're going to recognize a man that, that, that the Lord has appointed, you must familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with Christ as presented in the gospel because there's something about the man that at least is Christ-like. Something. He's going to be an imperfect human being. You're going to see that right off the bat, generally. But is there something about the fragrance of Christ that follows him? Is there something about the, uh, the way that he treats those around him that speaks, not just, quote, of a, a nice guy. 
but someone who actually loves them and loves their lives and loves their families and loves them and calls them to walk with Jesus. Secondly, Jesus has given you the qualifications throughout the word. First Timothy chapter three. How much time have you spent in that chapter since we started these messages? Uh, Titus uh, chapter one. Um, Second Timothy. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, just all the way through. There are several wonderful passages there. I'm planning to send them out in an email to you. Acts chapter 20. When Paul instructs the elders there for Ephesus. Read those passages so that you can say, I, you know what? That brother sure seems to reflect some of that stuff that we're talking about here. Not perfect, but it's there. Well, then, we're finally here. A bishop then must be blameless. And first on his list is husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. That simple phrase has been a heated battleground for many, many centuries. Many. And the Lord people are still wrestling over it. I understand that. <clears throat> Why wouldn't our spiritual enemies want us to be confused about this? Why? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. God built it into nature in what we call marriage. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. You've got to know Christ, and you've got to know something about him to love her that way. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. That's got to be visible in the man that we would call to be an elder. His marriage says so much about him. And his wife knows more than anybody on the planet that he's got weaknesses or even, as Calvin would say, infirmities pastors wives are great women so how's he do with his wife he's supposed to be a one man woman what does that mean I'm sorry a one woman man given our day some would accept what I said just a moment ago, but the, what then is a one-woman man? 
Throughout the history of Christ's church, pastors and theologians have debated at least four different answers. Now, I'm going to give you two warnings. The first warning is I'm going to be reviewing viewpoints that disagree with one another. I'm not going to spend hours and hours and hours and hours upon them, but I do want you thinking. I want you having a sense of how challenging interpreting the word of God can be. There are a number of things I'm doing by doing this this way. Not the least, uh, backing up what I have said numerous times. What does it say? What does it mean? And how do I apply it? Sounds simple. It's not. We have to study. Study to show ourselves approved. Well, then, let's jump right in. That was the first warning. There's another one coming. Four positions. Number one, some believe that elders must be married because it says a one woman man. Some believe, number two, that elders must not be polygamists, meaning more than one wife. Number three, some believe that elders may only be married once. Number four, some believe that elders must be maritally and sexually faithful to one woman. So, <clears throat> among the works that I have consulted, I have found help, uh, especially in this subject, uh, in the books by Alexander Strauch and William Mounts. <clears throat> you see, Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't say it in a clear way for us <clears throat> whether he means one wife at a time Or once in a lifetime. Boy, that's two very serious differences. <clears throat> the only thing they have in common is a man marrying a woman. That's, that's it. Uh, uh, so, now let me, let me give you warning number two. Beware. How you think about marriage and divorce will drive the way you interpret this. Your view of marriage and divorce will drive the way you want to interpret this. <clears throat> if I can put it this way, that trigger warnings will come at the conclusion. <laughs> so I'm warning you, you know, I, I understand and know that the sheep here hold differing views on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And that's, that's going to make a huge difference in the way you understand much of what's being said here. Not looking for a dust-up. I'm not looking for a street fight with anybody. I just want to press you to think because we're looking at the holy words of God and those holy words are given in a grammatical form and we have to understand something about what Paul is saying in his context. It's easy to get stuck on just a few words. 
when those words are not just night and day clear. And of course, some who have very, 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 very strong views of divorce and remarriage will say it's as plain as day. But it's not in the text itself. So that's where we always have to walk cautiously and think about the consciences of our brothers and sisters, of those who agree with us and of those who do not. Your conscience matters to me. So I'm not attacking anybody by what I'm going to say that follows. <clears throat> now, we're going to enter the, the waters of debate here, and we want to enter those waters doing two things. Okay, One, love one another as Christ has loved us. That's where it's got to start. Love one another as Christ has loved us. And number two, let every man, and that includes women, let every man be swift to hear. I can tell you that your filters will get in the way here. I will tell you that now. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We want to work the righteousness of God. All right. <clears throat> Number one, some believe that elders must be married. That's what they take from one woman, man. <clears throat> Eastern Orthodox congregations have a high view of the family. And they favor this interpretation. In other words, in order for a man to be an elder, he must be married. So that he, his wife... Uh, are examples to the flock. Now, that's not a bad thinking. In fact, all of these views have great minds that have struggled with them for years. Just to give you an example of what we're about to run into, years ago, one of the young men that's no longer in this congregation came to me and said, I'm, I'm wanting to join the military. And I said, okay, why? He gave me some of his reasons, and some of those reasons really bothered me. But uh, he was a young man that was ready to get out of the house, and he was pretty angry. So he was going to the military. And he said, what do you advise? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I gave him a book that uh, was entitled War, Four Views. And I said, now I want you to read every chapter. I want you to read all the arguments that the men make. I want you to take your Bible and look at the way they're using those verses. And then I want you to make your decision. All right. <laughs> well, when I saw him, he actually did that. He looked at it. I said, well, what do you think? He said, I'm all four of them. Well, you can't really be that. But in other words, he was telling me he was convinced by every argument from each position. All right, it was like, wow, I, I kind of agree with everybody. 
Well, you can't. It would be nice if we could. But this is exactly the way it goes. Very often, we think we know something when we've never really studied what the other person believes. And we have a straw man, as they call it. Or we have something of a dummy view of their... Of their uh, I don't mean dummy as mentally dummy. I don't mean that. I mean a, a, like a crash dummy. You know, they they... They have no idea really what that other view holds. It's kind of like, this is my team. My team's going to win no matter what. And if not, it's somebody's fault. We're going to win. Right? But they don't, they don't realize the other team can outplay them. And very often they do. Happens in theology if you're conscientious. You have to look and say, I believe that I believe this, but... Um, Hmm. I've had some arguments set before me. I need to really think through carefully. Now, sorry, we don't say here, and and you're probably in a cult, if they do say, we're the only ones that are right. (laughs) So at first glance now, this looks like a good conclusion. Listen carefully. John Calvin while he did not hold this perspective, believed it was reasonable. All right? He said, now, that's not especially my view, but I can see that it's a reasonable view and why they've come to that conclusion. So he says, one, uh, excuse me, a quote, I do not disapprove of the opinion of those who think that the Holy Spirit intended to guard against the diabolical superstition which afterwards arose. As if he had said, quote, so far is it from being right, that means commanding singleness from uh, the priests and bishops. So far is it from being right and proper that celibacy should be enforced on bishops, that marriage is a state highly becoming in all believers. In this way, He, Paul, would not demand it as a thing necessary for them, but would only praise it as not inconsistent with the dignity of the office. Close quote. What? Well, what what he's saying is that now I don't fully, I, I haven't fully embraced that, but I can tell you that the very fact that they're standing For men who preach and teach to be married, I'm all for it. You know, I'm with them on that. By the way, that's a very Christian thought. I can't agree with you, brother, on everywhere you're going on that. But right here, we can fellowship. Many of us have our our little list of five to ten things. If they don't have that, well, bye. You know, now, if it's the deity of Christ, that's a good one. Separate. (laughs) but this is what's going on here. Think about it carefully. He's agreeing where he can agree, and he's not throwing their view out or calling them apostates. He said, you believe in marriage, and it's it's a high and glorious union. I'm for it, he says. Now, William Mounts, however, offers the following thoughts. And he begins with, there are problems with this view. This is not an exact quote. But there are problems with that view. 
He's going to unfold them. Number one, the emphasis is on the word one. Not on the marital state itself. It's not whether the man is married or not, but in the state of being married, one woman is what it's pointing to. If you're married, one woman. That's it. All right. Number two, oh, by the way, uh, it's all about a man's moral character, not his moral status. It's about how he treats the marriage rather than that he is. Does it make sense? Yeah, okay, good. <clears throat> so then, number two, if, if this is the interpretation, neither Jesus nor Paul could be elders in a church. Uh-oh, that's a big one. That's a big problem. But that's exactly the case. If you press this, if you press what Paul, uh, Paul is saying here, too far, well, Jesus himself and Paul could not be elders in your church. Okay? Now, there is some argumentation of whether Paul was once married. We're not going to enter the waters of that debate, but it is historic, uh, at least in the minds of some, that Pharisees had to be married. So if Paul was a Pharisee, uh, he'd been married at some time, but it's obvious by the time he's writing his letters that he's not married. So it's surmised uh, that his wife must have died. We don't have any of that in the scriptures, so I don't have anything to say about it to you right now. Other than that, <laughs> here's what I'm saying. I'm not talking about it. Right, so then uh, number three, to insist on marriage would show Paul contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, where he encourages remaining unmarried to better serve Christ. There are people that do that. I've known them. There are people that say, I'm not going to get married, you know, because I want to give all my energy, all my strength to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be slowed down, you know, by... The, the, the wonderful issues of having a family. I just want to follow Christ on this. Uh, Paul approves that very strongly. In fact, as you read Paul, uh, many have come to the conclusion that he really thought that was a better state for Christians to live in, but he did not force it. Number four, furthermore, reasoning in this fashion would make it necessary. Now, this is one of those places. <clears throat> reasoning like this, okay, one woman man means you must be married. <clears throat> reasoning that way would make it necessary for an elder to have more than one child. Because it says down here that he keeps his children plural. Not his child, but his children. And so the very thing Paul would be declaring is, well, he's got to be married and he's got to have more than one child. Now, that's not a crazy notion, but is it what Paul is saying? Why am I doing this to you? I can tell some of you are drifting. Because this is how you have to wrestle through a lot of things in God's word. And this is also why there are pastors 
teachers. They're giving them themselves to trying to untangle these things that God's people have argued for for centuries. So, few would think that Paul was really requiring for a man to be a pastor to have more than one child. But just, why, why that? There, there's no, not too many people have run to defend that, which I'm very thankful for. Okay, so one woman man could mean a man needs to be married. And I will tell you, generally speaking, I think he should be. But I could not make that an absolute binding thing. I know of men in other congregations that are not married. One who is 70 years old called me just the other day. Still looking for a wife. And he has faithfully pastored a congregation that's growing and has been since he's been there. So, uh, obviously, there's something good happening there for a man who doesn't have a wife. So, we're not convinced that one woman man means a man must be married. It's probably the best idea, especially because one of the things he's going to do is counseling uh, marriages. And it's very hard, as history has shown, for some folks to do that. Number two, some believe that elders must be, uh, must not be polygamists. Must not be polygamists. This too is an attractive interpretation. It really is. Especially because it does the most justice to the phrase one woman. One woman. Now, there seems to be no historical evidence that polygamy existed in Judaism at the time Paul wrote. We know from the Old Testament that early in the life of Israel and before they were even a nation, polygamy was clearly being practiced. But um, as time changed, apparently by the time of Paul's writing, the idea of monogamy had really taken over within the Jewish community. So it certainly doesn't seem to be something that would affect uh, the Jews. Uh, but it's also difficult to find any historic evidence that polygamy was practiced by the Gentiles of the Greco-Roman Empire at that time. At that time. Polygamy has been around for a long time. Go to the first book of the Bible. Uh-uh. But the, folks, but the fact of the matter is, now, and, and once again, you hear where we are? We're having to wrestle about history. Now, history is an important thing in interpreting the scriptures, but you can still interpret the scriptures well if you don't know much about history. You know, but the Holy Spirit can show you much. But the fact of the matter is, the, the Bible is a historical book. It took place during certain times, and it addresses things that people said and did, which we're not doing which we don't understand their cultures very often. And so history can be very helpful in that point. Notice the word, helpful, not central. It's kind of like a friend that throws in his two cents every now and then. Now, many faithful commentators throughout the years have held the, this polygamy view, such as the, earthly church, uh, the early church father, Justin, 
Later, John Calvin, uh, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, a famous Baptist um, Greek scholar, and in our time, Wayne Grudem. Some of you may know that, that name. However, one of the problems with this <laughs> comes from the very letter itself. In chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Timothy, it says, Let not a widow be taken under the number, uh, into the number under threescore years of age. All right? Uh, a woman from 59 down is not to be brought to the congregation for the congregation to care for everything for her. Whoa. We're not going to do that. You can go back and listen to my sermons on Timothy when I did those. But, but the, the fact is he's given, he's trying to keep unnecessary financial burdens off of the churches because they were often very poor. So what, what's happening here is it says, don't let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man. Now, that verse does not give us any idea that there is such a thing as polyandry going on among the Lord's people. There's polygamy. We've heard of that. It's also known as polygyny. But there's polyandry. That means a woman who has more than one husband. That sounds strange to you children, and it should. But it is a reality. Not too long ago, in a British newspaper, they were touting this big article about, oh, this family, this wonderful family of this woman who's married to four men. All right? This is perversion. But the fact of the matter is, our culture says just about anything you want to do, fleshly, sexually, is just fine with us. The Bible says no. The Bible was a disruptor. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, were disruptors all through the, uh, the, the hundreds of years before Christ came because it, it called for at least marital faithfulness. Even in polygamy, there was a, a requirement of faithfulness. And there being a family. So, uh, not only that, we have clear, we've got one clear passage in Scripture that would say a woman having more than one wife, a woman having more than one husband would be a problem. Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, it says this, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, not husbands, to her husband so long as he liveth, but if the husband, the definite article, if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. This forbids that notion of having more than one husband. Or we could go on. All of these could go on for a very long time. I won't do that to you. You may already be planning reproof. But number three says, some believe that elders may only be married once. One woman, man. They look at that. They see one. They put the proper emphasis on that one. And so he can only be married one time. Some believe that. <clears throat> 
Um, some maintain that for an elder to have been remarried, even after the death of his wife, <clears throat> I think that's what Paul's forbidding. Now stop and say, and I know nobody here holds that perspective. So I can say this very plainly. <clears throat> to tell a man that he cannot remarry after a, a, a spouse passes away is to ignore other scriptures or you have to fix them so that they agree with your view. Now, all of us have to wrestle with that. Don't, don't, don't think somebody's really, we're pure and everybody else is defiled. We all struggle with what we believe if you're reading carefully. Now, there are those among our brethren and some here in our congregation who are convinced that uh, of one, one of two perspectives, one, that there is no biblical uh, justification for divorce under any circumstance, and there's no, and uh, remarriage, of course, then is completely, it's not possible if there's no divorce for any reason. There are others that would say, yes, you can divorce for adultery, but you cannot remarry. Some very prominent men in our uh, um, stream of, of things hold this. Um, Vody Bauckham, we love Vody. <laughs> he holds that very strongly. Uh, same thing with John Piper. We have other areas where we don't agree with Dr. Piper, but he holds that very strongly. Interestingly enough, he functioned for years with several elders that completely disagreed with his view. It's called the permanence view. And uh, there are very fine people throughout the history of the church that have held that view. And it was it got traction within the homeschool circles and it's busted up a lot of things because you have to think about what your doctrine implies. Okay, here's we had a, a family here that we loved dearly that left very sadly. Sad for me. Uh, they came into my office and they said, this was when Pastor Stephen was a, a pastor here. And they said, we're leaving the church. We appreciate you all. But number one, you're not true pastors. You are not pastors of Jesus Christ. You have no business being pastors of Jesus Christ because you permit adultery. If someone remarries, when the Bible says you can't remarry, you are immediately an adulterer or an adulteress. Now, that's a serious charge. But that is exactly where their position brought them. Not only that, they said, we're leaving here not only because you're not elders, you're not pastors, you don't love Christ and his people like you should. This is not a church. This is not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ because it permits adultery knowingly. Everything you believe has consequences. Many of us have not sat to think about how our doctrines work out. And those who hold that view, 
Uh, there are many books written on it, but they've got some of the best. I, I've learned more reading some of their books than I have some of the books that defend the, the standard classic view of divorce for adultery. So, once again, you're getting quiet. Some of you are drooping. Let me say to you, what you believe matters and what you believe has consequences. And so you need to weigh very carefully what those things mean. Before you take the strongest bottom line that you can on a doctrine, the strongest bottom line uh, may immediately cut some of the Lord's people out of the body, at least in your thinking. Are, are you with me? I'm, I'm hoping that all that quietness is that you are thinking, and boy, are y'all going to have discussions at lunch. Okay? Now, so one woman man. You got married, she passed away, or you got married, and she... Uh, divorced you she ran away she any of those things you cannot get married again very 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 uh, well informed men and people believe this all right so for those who believe that Christ has permitted divorce in limited lawful circumstances it is then possible for a man uh, who fit into those limited situations to be an elder other than that for those that hold this position, he cannot possibly serve the Lord in that condition. Well, you see, that, that makes a huge difference. Last one, and then we'll be done. Some believe that elders must be maritally and sexually faithful. All right, this is the last view. When all is said and done... This seems to be the simplest and the best interpretation. I believe that it is, but you can disagree with me. Many good men would. It does justice to the best of the previous arguments and creates the least number of problems with other portions of Scripture. Sometimes that's the only way you can make a decision on what something means doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It, it does mean this. What are the implications of it? Many times somebody just makes a strong argument, beats the, the pulpit, and, and, he's a, and he's a prestigious person, and we believe it because, they, because he is. But it isn't because we've sat down and thought through and read through some of these things. I lost, I've lost sleep over this. So I, I have some investment in this. When someone tells you you are not called of God because you permit adultery, I don't know about you, but I can tell you for me, that is something that has to be dealt with. So, and I, and, and I don't hold the positions that I do because I'm divorced. I'm not. I've been married to my beloved uh, uh, we'll be hitting 48 very soon. I thank God. <clears throat> so, what, what does this actually mean? One woman, man. Well, what's the context? 
It was a highly immoral society. You didn't find people that were all happily married among the heathen and the pagans. Even though in, in, at certain times in the Roman Empire, divorce was looked down on. But it was more of a moral and prestige thing. Not because of God's word. We should be drawn by the word of God. So in this view, using the phrase, a one-woman man, Paul is saying that an elder must be a faithful husband, a maritally and sexually faithful husband who exemplifies loving his wife as Christ loves the church. I believe that's the idea. And it holds to the idea, again, I say generally speaking, a man should be married if he's going to be an elder but I've not made the law, but I can appreciate, like Calvin, those who have held that particular perspective because it makes a man more well-rounded in how to deal with people. And if anybody knows his weaknesses, it's a man with a good wife. And I have one. So they are to exemplify what the Scriptures teach. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. If you're married, love that woman like Christ loves the church. These are adjectives that are describing the man himself, his moral character. And that character is shaped by the word of God. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. You don't have an, ex an excuse if you call yourself a Christian to do otherwise. That's exactly why he should be an example of a faithful husband who walks with his wife and cares for her condition, whether it's physical or spiritual. You need to deal with both. A man that refuses to love his wife as Christ loves the church needs to question his profession because it's direct rebellion against Christ, the head of the church. You don't have an option to say, well, you know, let me think about that. <laughs> it's, I, no, that's not going to work. Husbands, love your wives. Give yourself for them. You want a wife that can say, I love my husband because I know this guy wears himself out for me. He speaks to me of Christ. Every day, we worship Jesus together. We pray. We sing to his glory. <clears throat> my brethren, this particular view prohibits all forms of unfaithfulness in a marriage, whether the person has been married before or not. It prohibits all forms of unfaithfulness from polygamy, concubinage, having a concubine, a, a, a common law wife as they're often called, homosexuality, adultery, pornography. It is adultery. Or any other form of questionable sexual relationship. Wayne Grudem helpfully suggests this. And I, this was tremendous. 
quote, all the other qualifications listed by Paul refer to a man's present status, not his entire past life. Isn't that good? Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the cleansing power and the forgiving power of Jesus Christ, the Lord. None of us should be judged in our present status by our entire past life. A man may have had five wives. Jesus didn't say to the woman on the well, look, you've had five husbands, that's exactly right, and you don't have one now. The one you're living with, sorry you can't come into the kingdom. You're just too filthy. No. We're all too filthy to enter by any kind of works. There's one thing to do, and that's to repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And deal with me for what I am, not what I was. I mean, the man that wrote Amazing Grace had a life that was a horror of debauchery and violence and drunkenness. No, no, you can't write that song Amazing Grace, John. That's, <laughs> we can't listen to you because you were just a dunghill of a human being. No, none of us are what we were if we've been born of God's Spirit. And while our past is always going to deal with us at certain points, these are the last things that Paul wrote. He was still saying, I was a persecutor. He remembered it. But he remembered that Christ freed him from it. All right. So... It does not mean one who has been above reproach for his whole life, but one who is now above reproach. Christ has changed him, and in his life, it is clear that he's walking with the Savior. That clear? What they used to be has been washed away by the blood of Christ. It will still have an impact But very often, that very thing is one of the reasons he can talk to you about how glorious Christ is. So, those four things take a while to work through. And some will not agree with where I have finally landed. I believe this is exactly right. If you're married, whatever has happened, if you are married, you must be faithful to that spouse. And a man that's going to be an elder must be A one-woman man, faithful to her spiritually and physically. So, as we look for an elder, we must be clear on the importance of the role of bishop. And as we look for an elder, we must be clear on the matters of what it means to be blameless. We're not looking for a perfect man, but we're looking for a righteous man who walks faithfully with Christ and manifests his conversion by the life that he leads. We'll take up there next week, God willing. Amen. Now, Father, we've, uh, we've had to work through some things here. We've had to think about some things that break our train of thought. We love to hear about Christ. We love to hear about the cross. We love to hear the gospel over and over again.
And yet thou hast taught us things here in the scriptures that often we must stop and labor over. I want thy people here to think, to really honestly think and examine the scriptures and to be sure that what they hold is because they found it in the word of God. Help us to be a Bible reading, Bible studying, Bible memorizing people so that we might know our Savior and so that we might recognize a man you've called to serve the owner of the flock. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thankfully, there's only one other controversy in the, uh, the characteristics here, the qualifications, and it's several verses away, so we won't have that right away. But dear brethren, I want you with all my heart to take seriously that you've got to think through what you believe and be sure that you know at least there's a reason for believing it's taught in the Word of God. <clears throat> Young people, you can't live on your parents' faith. You need to get into this book and have faith in what God says. That being said, please stand with me and we will be dismissed. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of the Savior.